0: Well, good morning, everyone. It's good, as always, to see you. And uh, today I want to welcome you. We are starting a brand new summer series called Parables. And we are together going to be studying some of Jesus' most amazing teachings uh, for the next six weeks. Today, uh, we're starting with a, a parable that is often called a parable about parables. It's kind of a master key Uh, to all the rest of the parables, and I think you'll see more about why that's true as we go through it. And we find this parable in Matthew chapter 13, uh, verses 1 through 9, but we also can find it in in Mark and Luke. They record it as well, and it's known by different names. It's often called the parable of the sower, sometimes uh, the parable of the seed, but but I think the most accurate name would be the parable of the soils. And so today, we're going to be studying Uh, what Jesus tells us about the four soils. We're going to learn some things about parables in general and also about what this uh, parable specifically uh, teaches us. So I invite you to open up and turn on your copy of God's word if you haven't done that yet. uh, We begin reading Matthew 13, starting in verse 1. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil where it produced a crop, a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. Whoever has ears, let them hear. And this is the word of God to us today, and all God's people say, Amen. amen. There's an old story about Albert Einstein and his chauffeur. And uh, uh, for years, Einstein traveled around giving this lecture. His chauffeur was always with him. Uh, He had probably heard the lecture about 100 times. And one day, he said to Einstein, you know, I've heard you give that lecture so many times. I think that I could give it. And then Einstein said, well, why don't you? So the next night, the chauffeur pretended to be Einstein Einstein dressed like the chauffeur and the chauffeur delivered the lecture it all went really really well until the very end because they had forgotten about the Q&A after and someone stood up and asked this very very complex question about quantum physics the chauffeur stood silent for a moment and then he said you know that question is so easy I'm gonna let my chauffeur handle this one Uh, We hear that and we go, genius, right? Einstein. Um, As we begin uh, today studying Jesus' parables, I want to point something out. We often think of Jesus as holy. We often think of Jesus as powerful, as kind, and as, as good, and those things are all true. But one of the categories I think that we don't often consider about him is that Jesus is brilliant. Jesus is the most brilliant teacher ever. Jesus, who was fully divine and fully human, was also the smartest and wisest man who ever lived. And in the parables of Jesus, we see in a unique way his genius. Think about it. Every time that anyone, whether they're a believer or not, says that they are trying to be a good Samaritan, Anytime anyone talks about someone and says, yeah, they're kind of like a prodigal son, they are tapping into the genius of Jesus. We're still talking about Jesus' parables 2,000 years later. I don't know if you know this, but parables were the primary way that Jesus chose to teach. In fact, about one-third of his words recorded in the Gospels are parables. Later on in our chapter, verse 34 of Matthew 13, it says Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd in parables. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. Maybe you're wondering, well, what exactly is a parable and how are we to read and understand them? Well, the word parable comes from a Greek word pronounced uh, parabolo, uh, which is made up of of two different Greek words. Balo means to throw. And para is a a preposition that just means alongside. And you put those together and the idea is to throw alongside. And that tells us that a parable is a way of expressing spiritual or moral truth by laying it alongside something that is more easily understood. And I think we all kind of get this instinctively because we all love stories. Stories make truth more interesting, right? Stories make truth easier to remember. We, we just learn better through story. And so Jesus would regularly take something from everyday life, maybe a familiar object, sometimes a life circumstance, sometimes a challenge, and he would just throw it alongside truth about God's kingdom so that he could teach people truth about God's kingdom Jesus would ask a question like, have you ever desperately searched for a lost coin? Jesus would ask, have you ever seen a shepherd desperately searching for a lost sheep? And Jesus would say, that's a picture of God's heart for lost people, people far from him. He would tell these wonderful stories, and there's around 60 of them in the Gospels about buried treasure and bad debts and lazy employees and tax collectors and corrupt judges and wedding feasts, and people just ate them up. People loved Jesus' stories. As we read them, there's a couple of things that are important for us to know. One of them is that parables aren't allegories. And this just means in a parable, it's not the case that every detail is to correspond to something else. Usually, a parable has one central truth. It's also important to know, and this will kind of rub against the grain of our culture. Uh, and some of you may react to it, but parables are intended to conceal as well as reveal Jesus often used parables as kind of a two-edged sword he he used parables to teach those who believe in him who chose to follow him but but at the same time for those who were denying the obvious truth about Jesus like his miracles and his wisdom that was so evident the parables they would be means of concealing truth and they would eventually become a means of judgment. Parables are such an important part of Jesus' ministry. And so, uh, as we enter into this series, and with all of those things in mind, let's start with this parable, the parable of the soils. What is Jesus teaching in Matthew 13, verses 1 through 23? Well, what he's talking about in this parable is really something that all of us see around us all of the time. Why? Do some people respond to Jesus and some don't? Why do some people give Jesus their lives with great joy and others look at the cross and yawn or sometimes even snarl in hatred? Why do some people follow Jesus with great enthusiasm for a short time and and then one day you look around and they're nowhere to be found? Why? Do some people say they believe, but their lives never really change? You really can't see any evidence of that. Now, we're going to come back to verses 10 through 17 later on, but I want you to look down the page to verses 18 through 23 now, because in these verses, Jesus answers those questions for us as he explains this parable to the disciples. This is what we see in verse 18. Listen then The seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. But the seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. This is the one who produces a crop yielding a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. So in this parable, Jesus talks about four different kinds of soils. And these four soils represent four different kinds of hearing. And he's telling us that people hear the gospel, the word, in different ways. Three of these kinds of soil represent hearing that that fails to produce fruit. Real, genuine, lasting, persevering fruit. And only one soil hears with understanding and that becomes key to the passage, this word understanding. Notice how Jesus describes this good soil in verse 23. He says the, the seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understand it. If you were to look through this chapter, you're gonna see this word understanding again and again. It's in verse 13, verse 14, verse 19, verse 23. And, and that word is key here. We're seeing four people Uh, four types of people, and three are are people that do not hear the gospel with understanding. Only one does. If you look a little closer, we're going to see that one of these soils represents clearly an unbeliever, while two of the soils are clearly counterfeit believers, and only the fourth one is a, a genuine believer. So let's walk through these. Here's the first soil. Uh, It's it's the path, and this represents a hard heart. We see this in verses 18 and 19. This soil uh, represents what we would just call an obvious unbeliever. As seed is sown, some of it falls along this path where people walk, and that that ground is hard, and and a bird comes and snatches it up because it's just sitting on the surface. Jesus says in verse 19, That's like the enemy that comes when God's word is sown into the soil of a person's life and the enemy snatches the word away. This word snatches is a a violent word. It means to take by force and it shows us that that our enemy wants to blind people's minds to the truth of the gospel. The enemy violently opposes the preaching of the gospel, violently opposes even the, the hearing of the gospel and he will fight to keep people in darkness. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, uh, it says, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ. See, in other words, Satan is always at work seeking to blind people to the beauty of Christ, the preeminence of Christ, the uniqueness of Christ, that he is God and Savior and Lord. They listen to false ideas that challenge his, his identity as, as God, fully God and fully man. Satan blinds people to the urgency of the gospel. And people will often say, you've heard it, I'll get to religion later in life. Other people will say, I just have more important things to do now. And so minds get blinded and hearts get dulled to the gospel's urgency. People don't respond. The Satan also blinds people to the relevance of the gospel. People say, well, it might be true for you, but it's not true for me. Or maybe they'll say, I don't really see how this has any kind of help for my life. And what's happening is the enemy is blinding. He's corrupting. He's deceiving Now, let me make a parenthetical statement here. If you are a true believer in Jesus Christ, if you are walking with him, the enemy is still working like crazy to keep you from hearing God's word and to take that word when you hear it away from you. See, I'm cognizant every Sunday when I stand up here and you sit out there that the enemy is at work, the enemy is working as I preach the word of God to you, trying to snatch away the word, trying to take away the message from some of you that need to hear it. And right now that's happening. Right now, the enemy is opposing what we're doing in this room. Some of you already have had a thought in your head, I should check my Instagram Or my Facebook, depending on your age. That's just not a random thought when you're in church. And it's also not a thought you have because the sermon is boring. I mean, it might be boring, but that's not why that's happening. You're being distracted. You're being taken away. Your attention is being diverted to something else. That's the kind of thing that, that, that takes place. You know, some of you, as soon as you walk out of here, Satan will try to take whatever it is you heard, whatever God through his spirit has been saying to you through his word to, to get into your life, to change your life, areas that you need to repent of, areas you need to obey and different things that may be happening. He's trying to get you to forget those. And turn your attention to something else. What's for lunch? What am I going to watch? What game am I going to watch? You know, when I get home. And he wants you just to forget about whatever it is you decided to do in obedience to God's word while you were here. He fights that. And tomorrow you're going to wake up and God's Spirit's going to be calling you to spend some time with Him, read His Word and, and fellowship with Him. The enemy's going to fight that. He opposes you, hearing and understanding and obeying God's word. It is just something that is happening all the time and we need to be aware of it. Second soil is rocky soil. This is a superficial heart and this person is a heart who's got you know soil but there's just a lot of rocks in it. This is what we would call counterfeit number one. Verses 20 and 21, it says, The seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. And this is someone who makes a really emotional decision, but They really have no true conviction. They don't experience a a real conversion at the level of their, their life's loyalties. Maybe they went to a service at a church and they heard someone preach a Sermon and maybe some nice music was played and some guy at the end stood up and offered an invitation to come to Christ and they like sang 37 you know, stanzas of an old hymn and the music was just right and the, the, the songs were just right and the lighting was just right, everything was just right and the heartstrings were tugged at and they responded with joy and said, yes, I wanna become a Christian and people prayed for them and, and, and everyone celebrated but it was all just a superficial, emotional decision. Nothing really changed. No true, lasting conviction about Jesus, the Son of God, his lordship over their life, the beauty of who he is. No conversion of their loyalties. And soon, as quickly as they believed, some pressure comes into their lives, some opposition, maybe persecution, and they just fall away. You know, all too often, we in our culture confuse emotion with authenticity. Now, emotions aren't inherently bad, but emotion never defines what is true. See, in this case, the seed did not penetrate the heart. What this is is something shallow and superficial and temporary. And as soon as this person feels the heat and feels the pressure, they, they just give in. Jesus says they fall away. Uh, the Greek word here is pronounced scandalizo. It's where we get our word scandalized from. And, and the idea in this word is that they just stop believing. They say, I, I used to believe, but I don't really believe that anymore. Ever known someone like that? Why did they stop believing? Well, they stopped because following Jesus now comes with a social cost that they were not willing to pay. See, people's approval. A life of social comfort meant more to them than the word itself. And anytime you base a decision on Momo ocean without conviction, it will be easy to discard your faith when your faith requires you to sacrifice, when your faith is no longer convenient, when your faith leads you to some kind of pain or social humiliation. I'll follow Jesus as long as no one makes fun of me. But the minute that affliction or persecution arises because of the word, if you're this soil, you stop believing. Or maybe you alter Sometimes maybe you redefine your faith. And we need to recognize, if you don't know it already, we are living in a culture that is constantly applying pressure to our faith, right? We've talked about this a few times, but our culture today is in what some scholars would call a post-Christian context where it is becoming increasingly difficult to follow Jesus faithfully and to take his word seriously. And so as social pressure is increasingly being applied to Christians, many Christians are experiencing this choice. It's like you have two options. I can remain faithful to Jesus and his word, or I can make myself more socially acceptable by adjusting or maybe redefining my faith. Now, it's true that we must always have a posture of learning and growing and where we see that we thought things that are not in accordance with God's word, we've been in error, then we, we need to adjust, we need to course correct, but we also need to understand that at certain points to define, redefine the faith is the same thing as abandoning the faith, rejecting the faith, And so Jesus says what happens with these people as soon as it gets difficult, as soon as they face some social heat, as soon as that happens, they're out. They hit the eject button. I don't want this because for them, Christ is not better than their social comfort. And so they stop believing. And here's the truth. We need to be reminded of this regularly. Jesus never promised his followers comfort. Never. He told us that we would experience opposition, sometimes persecution. This means you cannot be in uh, following Jesus and simultaneously be in the good graces of a culture that is opposed to Jesus. It's impossible. See, we're living in a culture. It's becoming more clear all the time just how diametrically opposed the culture is to Jesus and his teaching and We feel that on a day like today where we've just come out of a month where that reality has been blindingly obvious. We are living in a world where it is becoming increasingly difficult to faithfully follow Jesus. And I want to say to you, I think that is a good thing. See, in the past, it has often been for many People in many places in our country, it's been socially advantageous to be a Christian. And the result of that far too often is that Christianity in many people's lives becomes kind of this cultural phenomenon, not a spiritual reality. Far too many people put on the, the name of Christian when it's not true in their hearts But they do it because they want people to think well of them. And Christianity used to be that way that people would look at you and say you were a good person, a virtuous person. For some people in some situations, you may be surprised it really helped them in business if they were a Christian and they went to a church. And so some people adopted it for that. In other words, for a lot of people in the past, Jesus was an accessory. and We don't live in that kind of culture anymore. The lines are getting more clearly drawn all the time. And though there are, yes, some bad things that are happening around us, the good thing is it's getting easier to see who truly follows Christ. There are no free passes now. You can't have Jesus just as an accessory anymore. Now I've told you this before, but I think it would be helpful for us to remember that our culture in the 21st century looks more and more and more like the culture of the first century, the culture that the church was born into, the culture that New Testament Christians actually lived in, where if you follow Jesus faithfully, if you follow Jesus, you know, courageously and refused to say that Caesar is Lord, it could cost you your life. And Jesus said regularly, that people who would rather have the favor of other people, people who would rather have the favor of the culture more than his favor, they're they're just counterfeits. Counterfeits hit the eject button whenever it gets difficult. And again, Jesus never told us we would live in a world where we would be patted on the back for our faith in him. Listen to what he says in John 15, starting in verse 18. He says, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. (laughs) I love that. Jesus doesn't say, if the world hates you, I'm so sorry. That must be hard. He doesn't say that, does he? Look what he says next, starting in verse 19. He says, if you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. And I want you to listen to this. You cannot genuinely respond to God's word, the gospel, if it is in your heart to stay in the good graces of a culture that is opposed to God. You just won't do it. It just won't happen. It's rocky soil. And and we are seeing this all around us. A few years ago, an author named N.D. Wilson wrote an essay that was published in Christianity Today. Here's part of what he, he wrote. He said, cows like to turn their backs to the wind. At least all the cows I know do. Slowly, awkwardly, eventually, all that beef will run parallel to the breeze. People aren't too different. We align ourselves safely into herds, comforted by the hot breath of others breaking on the backs of our necks and ears, and then we huff and we puff and we blow at the fools turned in the wrong direction. Is there anything more compelling to us than the heavy synchronized breathing of a mob, especially when combined with cocked eyebrows of disdain and curled lips of disgust this is the zeitgeist inside the church and out and it will judge you until you conform and commune this is cool shaming and it will make you squirm and itch to turn your back to the wind to stand with with all the other cows prophets must be fearless immune to the pressures of kings and crowds aligned only with the breath of god we are in need of prophets now the world is busy applying pressure on social issues and christians are busy caving left and right trying to accept fresh cultural dogma simply so they might be accepted many of us would rather be in compliance with the crowd of now than successfully image the loves and hates of our father. But his breath rolls the North Sea and props up mountains. His words ripen fields of grain and infants still hidden in womb's warmth. May we run parallel to his breeze alone. When we turn, we must turn for truth, never for the mob, not when it's running to the revival tents and not when it's running to the guillotines. See, this is the call of what it means to be a Christian. And you must know that. You must know that when you come to Jesus, you are choosing sides. It is inescapable When we come to Christ, we must say, I am coming to Christ and I know that the world will set itself against me even as I set myself toward the world for the world's good. And I want to be really clear on this because some people will hear some of the things that I have just been saying and think that it gives them a license to be angry, think that it gives them a license to unload all the issues that they have going on in their life, thinks that it gives them a license to attack. We need to remember that choosing sides doesn't mean that we are angry and spiteful toward the world that opposes us because we follow one who died for his enemies. We follow one who prayed for forgiveness of his enemies even as they killed him. And so when we talk about the world resisting us. We're not talking about us being against the world. We're talking about us being so for the world that we would actually suffer for the world's good just like Jesus did. But we are saying this, we have by necessity when we choose to follow Christ, taken on a trajectory that runs counter to the world's grain. We're against the grain of our culture. And if we intend to make it through this life, getting patted on the back, getting applauded by the masses, hear me, we cannot possess a true saving faith. It will not happen because the moment we're thinking like that and then affliction happens and persecution arises, the heat is going up, the pressure's being put on us, the seed is going The seed is going to fail, and we're going to fall away. John 12, John explains why this happens. He's talking about some leaders in the culture of that day, he says, who actually believed in Jesus, but... For fear of the Pharisees, they would not admit that publicly because they didn't want to be kicked out of the temple. And here's what John says about those people. This is John 12, 43. He says, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. This is what Jesus is getting at in this parable. When affliction, when persecution hits, these people in this rocky soil they just immediately hit the eject button why because they love the glory that comes from other people more than they love the glory that comes from god and i just want to ask each of us today are you rocky soil is this where you are and if you think that may be the case are you willing to hear what jesus is saying and respond to his word here's the third soil this is the soil that's among thorns and this represents a distracted heart. Jesus writes the seed or says the seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word making it unfruitful. In Luke's account of this parable, he talks about the desire for other things. See, this is someone here who says they believe. They, they give intellectual assent to the doctrines of the faith, but there is no true treasuring of Jesus Christ. They, they actually say, I believe in these truths, I believe what the Bible says, but they do not treasure the Christ of Christianity. They have, they have heart thorns. And these are other desires that are competing with Jesus, and the, these competing desires end up choking the word, because their heart thorns are more important to them than Jesus. And slowly these thorns grow and they suffocate the seed until the word is completely choked out of this person's life. Now, this is somebody, this is somebody who has head knowledge about Christian belief, but their heart is filled up with love for other things, for the pursuits and pleasures Of the world instead of treasuring Christ people like this they have these distracted hearts they treasure wealth and pleasure and stock options and power and popularity and achievement and promotion other things but Jesus and and so they don't give their will they don't give their affections to Jesus they give those things to the world because this world is what they value this world is what they really want and so this world is what they pursue It's what they love. Again, Jesus is just an accessory. The things of this world, they compete with Christ and they choke out, they suffocate the seed. By the way, this is why I absolutely despise the prosperity gospel The the prosperity gospel promises the very things that Jesus here says choke out the gospel and damn people for eternity. The prosperity gospel is not the gospel. And if you are listening to people preaching the prosperity gospel, you are doing so in peril, I believe, to your souls. When someone anytime promises you that the pleasures of this world will come to you as a result of your faith, they are selling you a false gospel. The very thing that Jesus says will choke your soul, choke your faith. Did you notice Uh, Jesus doesn't say that these people immediately fall away. Uh, Look again and you'll see the difference in the language between the rocky and the thorny soil. In the rocky soil, pressure comes, affliction comes, persecution comes. Immediately they fall away. But this soil, there's no real persecution evidently. With this soil, this kind of happens slowly over time. The desire for riches slowly chokes out their faith. In other words, this isn't somebody who like visibly hits the eject button. This is somebody still in the church. This is somebody who could be sitting here right now. They're still showing up. And on the outside, it looks good. But Jesus says they're not bearing fruit. And I think this is the dominant counterfeit of our culture I think that all across our country, people fill our churches, and they they, they say they affirm the beliefs, the doctrines of Christianity, and some of them show up every Sunday, but their hearts are firmly attached to the things of this world. They don't treasure Jesus. Jesus is not glorious and beautiful to them. They don't pursue Jesus. Jesus is just an accessory that they wear, that they adopt to help their life be better. This is just the soil of Western culture that we live in, and it is the most insidious counterfeit in the church. Now, I know what some of you are thinking, and so I want to answer what some of you are thinking. Some of you are thinking, are you saying you can't be rich and be a Christian? Now, before I answer that question, I want to ask you a question, and I want you to think about my question, and my question is, why do you think you're asking that question? Why is that question coming to your mind? I think you should consider that. But here's my answer to your, to your question. It doesn't mean that you can't be rich and be a Christian. You can be. But the word of God is so very clear. It is hard to be rich and be a Christian. You say, well, I don't know about that. Well, you need to take it up with Jesus because I did not make that up. That's what Jesus said. All right? I mean, you can look it up. One example, it's in multiple places, but one example is Matthew 19, 24. Jesus said, it is hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Why? Why? Because we love other things, because we want other things. We treasure and pursue other things, and it's so easy for those thorns to wrap themselves around our hearts and to suffocate the spiritual life out of our souls. Beware of living among the thorns. Here's the fourth soil. This is the good soil. This is the fruitful heart. In verse 23, it says, but the seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. This is the one who produces a crop yielding 160 or 30 times what was sown. Now, now, notice this good soil. The soil goes down deep and the seed goes way down all the way into the heart. And the person not only hears, but they understand. They're, they're, they're awakened by the gospel. They're broken by the gospel. They see the word of God and they they see who Jesus clearly is and what Jesus has done. And they respond to him with all that they are. And there's joy. And there's this conversion of their loyalties. There's this treasuring of Christ and they receive his word. And that word changes them. It bears fruit in their lives. This is what Peter was talking about in 1 Peter 1.23 when he says, You have been born again not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. We're, we're born again by his word and that word bears fruit in our lives. Friends, do you see the gospel is so powerful that when it comes in reality, it invariably, as it takes root in a person's life, changes things, it makes them a different person. The gospel cannot be in our lives in truth and not have change result. There's this genuine turning from the world, turning to Jesus that results in a transformation of life. Jesus talks about how it looks different in different people's lives. Some people, he says, have this massive amount of transformation, like they bear a hundred times what was sown, and then other people, maybe it's a little less, but it's still significant. It's 60 times 30 times. It just tells us that not everyone's Life change looks the same. Some people change dramatically, fast, quick. Other people change slowly, more slowly. It may not be as, as visible, but change is happening. It's real, there's real fruit. All who, who live with, with uh, who hear with understanding will invariably, inevitably validate what has happened in their lives with change in their lives, fruitfulness in their lives. Now, let's ask an important question. What's the difference in these soils? Why, why do some understand and some don't? We get insight into that back in verses 10 through 17. If you back up a little bit, we skipped past that earlier, but let's look at it now. In, in verse 10, it says this, the disciples came to him and asked, why do you speak to the people in parables? In other words, Jesus, why don't you just speak simply and, and, and plainly to these people? And by the way, Jesus, what in the world are you talking about? I think they were a little confused. Verse 11, he replied, because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Did you catch that? Jesus tells the disciples the secrets of God's kingdom were not for the crowds, but they were for them. And as we read the scriptures, we see that God graciously gives these disciples the secrets of the kingdom, just like he's done for us as Christ's followers, He gives us eyes to see, ears to hear. And, and what we need to understand is this is all by grace, not by your goodness. Amen? It's just God's gift, but not to them. See, as we we think about the kingdom of God, part of the judgment is that people will look and listen, but not see or hear what God is doing because they are blind, they are deaf to what God is doing around them. They hear something and see something, but it doesn't register. They are not changed. Jesus' teachings are always like this. They're precious to those inside the kingdom They're confusing, meaningless to those outside. In verse 12, Jesus says, whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And that looks kind of cruel. And you're thinking, why is Jesus saying this? But think about it. Let's think about our relationship with Jesus. It's like this, isn't it? The closer we get to Jesus, the more we align our lives with Jesus, the more of his goodness we have the more we want, right? And he gives that. But there's the other side. The other side is judgment. And it works like this. The farther we drift from or the more we reject Jesus... The less taste we have for him, the less we want him. We find we lose even what we might have had at some point. And maybe the disciples are thinking, well, okay, Jesus, but why do you even bother to speak to the crowd? And why do you only speak to them in parables? And Jesus continues in verse 13. He says, this is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah you will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become callous. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. Jesus is pointing them back in their history to the prophet Isaiah how he preached for decades the truth that God had given him and people didn't listen and he says just like it happened back then it happens today I'm here as Messiah and they will not listen to me my words the word of God will fall on deaf ears and they will be like riddles that make no sense because do not miss this because these people they don't really want to understand Jesus, if you look at the flow of the Gospel of Matthew, you'll see this, is using parables at this point because the crowds have pretty much already rejected him. And he's still teaching truth. He's still keeping the door open, giving them opportunity if they want to follow. But his primary objective at this point in his ministry is to teach his disciples the deeper truths of the kingdom. Verse 16, he says but blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. For truly I tell you many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see but did not see it and to hear what you hear but did not hear it. You see Jesus always wants everyone to hear and know the truth but the reality is this, not everyone wants to hear and know the truth. It's always been that way, it will always be that way It's like what the Apostle Paul is going to write in the second letter to the Corinthian church. It's chapter 2, verse 15. He says, we are the pleasing aroma of Christ to those who are being saved. And to those who are perishing, we are the stench of death. I'll give you a picture of that. How many of you know what durian is? Anybody here? There's a few. Yeah, I I see the... (laughs) painful looks on some people's faces. You know what it is. It's a a fruit. It's actually very popular in Southeast Asia. I'm going to give you a picture of it. You can see right here, kind of, I don't know, looks like a mutated pineapple, maybe a little bit. It's pretty big. Um, And this is actually one of those, if you know, you know things. Uh, It may look interesting, but the truth is if I were to cut one of these durian open up here in this stage, I would just clear the room out. Everybody would leave pretty much, right? It it, it stinks. I mean, really, really badly. I, I've heard that if you go to certain parts of Southeast Asia, they'll, they'll have signs up like in hotels or malls with a picture of a durian and a line across it, kind of like a no smoking sign. They're just telling people, do not cut open one of these here. But, but there are millions and millions of people who actually love durian. Anybody want to say amen to that? Is anybody here? Probably a couple here. Um, I've heard someone say, um, I've actually just read about this. I don't think I really want to have the experience to be real honest. I heard someone say that a durian smells like a combination of Captain Crunch and really bad armpit. Are you hungry now? Um, It sounds... Gross, right? But as gross as that sounds to us, here's the reality. To many people, durian is delicious. Millions of people think that. And so the truth is, if I opened a a durian up on this stage, most of us would leave. But some of you would come to the front and say, can I have some? Because you love it. You come ask for some. See, durian is like the gospel. For some, the gospel is the aroma of life. For some, the gospel is the stench of death, and it is the condition of your heart that determines which way you react. It's kind of like this old saying, the same sun that hardens the clay softens the wax. And the difference is not in the sun that shines, but in what the sun shines on. And that's the whole point that Jesus is making with this parable so I want to leave you with this. Which soil are you? Are you a person who, if you're honest and you think about this, you would say, yeah, a, a hard heart. You're not even remotely interested in what we're talking about today and hearing what Jesus has to say. Or are you a person with a superficial heart and, You quickly say, yes, maybe you act with enthusiasm at certain times, but you just as quickly turn away whenever you feel the heat. Are you someone whose life is among the thorns? Your heart's being choked out by the pleasures of life, the deceitfulness of wealth. You're distracted and you're divided by the worries of this world. See, Jesus is saying to each of us, have a good heart. Have a heart that hears. Have a heart that understands. And the good news is, if you're in any of those other places, Jesus says it's very simple to move into the place of having this good heart that hears and understands and responds. All you have to do is repent and believe. You have to accept the truth of the gospel that we are all sinners and we All need God's salvation. And there's only one way to receive that salvation. And it is through faith in Jesus Christ. You turn from your sins. You believe in Jesus Christ. He changes your heart. He makes you good soil. You become part of his family. It can happen for you today. Right now. Right here. Will you hear will you understand that's what jesus is asking i want to ask you now if you would bow your heads we're going to celebrate the lord's supper in just a moment i'm going to ask the ushers to come forward now as we're praying and and as they do would you listen to the holy spirit speaking father god we thank you for your word we pray that you would help us each to hear what we need to hear we pray, Lord, that for those that are here today who have a, a genuine saving faith in Jesus, that you would give give us the grace to persevere and to keep our focus on you. And Lord, for those who are here and maybe they're just realizing for the first time that maybe their faith is counterfeit, that you would open their hearts and their eyes and they would truly hear with their ears and You would just grant them, Lord, repentance and faith in Jesus. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that you have loved us in Jesus, your son. And we ask as we continue in this time of worship, receiving the Lord's Supper, that you would speak to us. We pray these things all in Jesus' name and all God's people say, amen.